I'm Roger Allers, co-director of The Lion King, and you're listening to The Skull Rock Podcast. Alexa, play Skull Rock Podcast. Playing Skull Rock Podcast from Amazon Music. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast. This is your first time checking out the show. Welcome. Every week we're here talking all things Disney and pop culture with never before heard stories, behind the scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much, much more. I am your co-host, Al John Go, musician, lifelong Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culture fan. And you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, your other co-host, and I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Uh, If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And we're like on all the major platforms, so it's not that difficult to find us. Uh, You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at dave at skullrockpodcast.com how are you al john i am good dave we're just uh we're we're in the teething stages with the baby boy now oh my gosh i'm telling you i think a little bit of that uh tennessee whiskey uh or uh what do they call it kentucky mash kentucky mash yeah kentucky mash a little bit of that on a q-tip uh along the gums will will certainly help them out yeah i think uh we're we're working on sue the savage beast if you will so uh his wailing will co- hopefully subside we've checked out some interesting stuff on disney plus um you know we've got some news coming up about that i'm sure and just like we talked about last week dave i saw val the val kilmer story on amazon oh, last night how'd you like it i loved it absolutely loved it and Kristen, as you know is a huge val kilmer fan i remember um my first real Val Kilmer film that I saw was um, Willow. And Mm -hmm. I ended up watching, um, I think it was in Hot Shots and um, of course, Top Gun. How can we forget? And Real Genius. Yeah, and he also also played Jim Morrison in The Doors. Let me tell you something. It was him in The Doors movie was so convincing. He could have toured with the, yeah with, with the doors it and, was scary he was channeling jim morrison yeah and um and did you see the film yeah did oh you? wait okay. uh val? val yeah no no i haven't seen it yet okay. it's on my list of things to see yeah it is it is amazing and of course uh, i had been several years ago uh had been to a chicago comic-con where val was doing a signing and people are like, oh, wow, you know, Val looks certainly different. And of course, you know, the tongue cancer has taken its toll on Val and his health. And, you know, he now speaks with a talk box. And yeah. it's, just a, it's just really one of those things of resilience. He still goes out there. He still has a connection to the fans. He works certainly very hard. And, and he went to Juilliard. So he did the whole fame school thing. He worked really yeah. hard with so many people. So I have a whole new... Um, I've always thought that Val Kilmer was an amazing talent and this film just 
definitely just took it over that edge and I'm just a huge fan. And, um, of course, Tombstone, you and I love, love that film sure. anyway, you know, uh, I'm your Huckleberry. And I say that at work all the time, <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, and then Kristen is like, Oh, so that's where that phrase comes from. I'm like, Oh, certainly. I said, you, how can you be a, a, a Val Kilmer fan and, and not watch Tombstone? So I think we're going to have a Val Kilmer marathon here at the house at some point with her. There you go. You know, I, I, like I said, Val, Val is on my uh, list of uh, documentaries uh, of films to watch actually. But you know, this past week I did see the suicide squad oh, yeah. uh, in IMAX and you know, the James Gunn directed uh, suicide squad. And I also uh, saw a free guy with Ryan Reynolds uh, and uh, both terrific movies. I mean, great summer fun at the theater, whatever they're paying Margot Robbie to play a Harley Quinn is not enough because she is the best. And she, she's actually really terrific in this, in this particular movie. Uh, and uh, I really uh, enjoyed her performance uh, as I did with the, with the rest of the, uh, the cast. I mean, it's really a, a very diverse cast uh, of characters and uh, uh, James Gunn hit it out of the park finally for DC. Yeah. I mean, you know, they need more uh, storytellers like James Gunn over at DC to straighten out uh, the DC universe and get some good movies out. They've got great properties, but they seem to keep misfiring. Yeah. Well, exactly right. Uh, There's so there's, but Margot had been literally, she is, I believe the only DC uh, actress or actor that has been involved in more than three films. So, mm-hmm. you know, so she has definitely become the, the tentpole, surprisingly the tentpole. And I say three films. I mean, of course, I, I know that there's um, more than that uh, I, that's under her belt. But I think she she and um, Gal Gadot as well. So mm-hmm. they, they, they it's all built on their women, the strong female character. So good, good on DC. So but anyway, yeah. we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about a bunch of news headlines. But Dave, uh, waiting in the green room, we've got some special guests. We do. We've got Imagineers Alan Coates and Tony Baxter in the house today. Yeah. And we're really looking forward to having a great conversation with them about uh, not only their careers, but also uh, Claude Coates, who they both have a strong connection to. This is like the Imagineering special. So it is. It really is. So we're going to talk a lot about that history and, you know, Claude Coates being the Disney legend and actually, you know, both of them just just amazing, amazing, talented people. I can't wait to hear the behind the scenes stories on some of our favorite Disneyland attractions. So uh, we'll be well, I'll be waiting. I'll be waiting for that. But in the meantime, we do have the news. Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Well, Dave, I was going to say, and they said it couldn't be done, but that's not true. Um, Disney Plus hits 116 million subscribers last quarter. That was unveiled to everyone in the Disney investors call that uh, took place a couple days ago. And, uh, and actually before I do that, Dave, I have to, I have to say this. I meant to do this at the beginning of the show. Happy birthday. Hey man. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I, I had to, I had to say that. This Happy is birthday. the special Skull Rock <laughs> birthday show. Cue the Beatles. We're going to play your birthday song now. Um, 
No, we're, we're going to take you to Chuck E. Cheese so you can hear all the cheesy music there. That's what we're going to do. Awesome. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. But, uh, but it, as you celebrate your birthday, Dave, you know, Disney's also celebrating 116 million subscribers. Of course, they did say we were going to trend on that, but it definitely took them a lot less time to hit 116 million subscribers than they had forecasted so that's good yeah. news for them you know i i think it, i think it's fantastic uh i think that you know they they continue to build out the service um uh, obviously on wall street it's all about the subscriber numbers uh right now be with the streaming services and um i think disney when they reported their earnings this past thursday um really surprised a lot of people they beat on the top and bottom lines and uh Good for them. Absolutely. Bob Chapek was quoted saying, we continue to introduce exciting new experiences at our parks and resorts worldwide, along with new guest-centric services, and our direct-to-consumer business is performing very well, with a total of nearly 174 million subscribers across Disney, ESPN, and Hulu at the end of the quarter, and hosting new content to new platforms, and the company's direct-to-consumer revenues for the quarter rose 57% to 4.3 billion while operating losses scaled down to uh, 0.6 billion to 0.3 billion. It was due to in part Hulu subscription revenue growth and higher advertising revenue. So um, now that people are going out and they're doing things, uh, more advertisements are, are, are happening. So there you go. They're, they're making yeah. the money. And, and, you know, quite frankly, I don't think we're going to see any kind of shutdown uh, in, unless there's a doomsday variant where people are <laughs> literally dropping like flies. But yeah. uh, uh, barring that, I don't think that there's going to be any more uh, wholesale shutdowns of businesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't believe so either. So people are out there. And as we say every week, you know, um, hopefully the FDA will secure that uh that vax and, and make it happen. But in the meantime, everybody go out there and, and uh, be safe and, and vast, uh, get vaxxed and everything and, and, uh, and enjoy this and the cruise line. Um, you know, Chapek also mentioned strong success as Disney cruise line gets back up and running. They're getting some fall bookings right now. Um, I know Kristen's booking some cruises on the Disney wish. Um, my wife, uh, I guess they're doing it, uh, launching that uh, new, cruise ship summer of 2022 and of course capacity levels at the parks are going well uh, you know in there in there as well so yeah, yeah i mean overall i mean disney is is going strong you know it looks like the resorts are open to about 75 or 70 percent capacity at walt disney world and by the end of this year they'll be back up and running to a full 100 percent. so i guess that's a good thing yeah no i i absolutely i i think uh everything's going to continue to reopen and uh, hopefully, you know, people take the precautions they need to take and uh, we get through this. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned how you uh, saw Free Guy. Um, this, yeah, this, uh, I, I loved it. I, you know, Ryan Reynolds is so great on screen. He he just uh, it's it, you know he doesn't take himself seriously, uh, and he's just got such a great disposition. It was a fun movie. I'd recommend it to anybody, especially people who love gaming, mm -hmm. because the, this kind of takes place in and out of a game. Yeah, well, I, I'm hoping to check that out. Uh, we are also big Ryan Reynolds fans here. Uh, fan of his work with the Deadpool for sure. And uh, yeah, looking forward to checking this movie out. 
And I was going to say, uh, Ryan Reynolds, by the way, one of the funniest guys to follow on Instagram and Twitter, um, because he and also Taika Waititi, uh, also known for directing Thor Ragnarok and this mm-hmm. new Star Wars film. I don't know if you heard about that, but Taika Waititi is apparently uh, going to be hosting, uh, not hosting, he's going to be uh, directing a brand new Star Wars standalone film. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. He was ter- he was terrific as, quote, the villain, but I mean, he wasn't <laughs> a horrible villain. He was just a horrible person, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but but he's really, he, he's terrific. You, people will get a kick out of it. Yeah. But And there's also a couple of surprising uh, cameos in there. Oh, I, yeah. I don't, I don't want, I don't want to, uh, I'm not going to sort of spoil it for anybody, but but there's a couple of funny moments. Well, funny, funny thing is, is that he teamed up with Taika Waititi for Free Guy, but his initial team up with Taika Waititi was actually in the Warner Brothers Green Lantern film where he played the titular character and uh, there with Taika Waititi, his best friend. And they kind of disavowed that. I don't know if you saw some of the the promo videos that they did uh, promoting Deadpool 2, Dave, but uh, the actors in the film were like, hey, uh, didn't you and Taika star in uh, Green Lantern? And then all of a sudden they turn around and they were gone from their chairs. <laughs> They're like, uh, no, we, we disavow that film. But anyway, yeah, Ryan you know Reynolds. What? Yeah. I didn't think it was a terrible film. I, I actually enjoyed the Green Lantern and I wish they would do more, uh, you know, do another one with, mm-hmm. with Ryan Reynolds. But, you know, again, uh, you need to get good storytellers and get those suits out of the editing room room this is true you know, let the let the creators create um, yeah their their film and and you know do what they need to do with the source material but anyway so i got this uh little snippet from you dave ryan reynolds confirms disney wants a free guy sequel sequel and of course this film was uh i guess um released under the 20th century studios banner which is now under disney and so congratulations. I think everybody's firing on all cylinders regarding free guy. So yeah, another- but it is from Marvel studios. Is it really? Yes. Is that a Marvel a studios Mar- film? This is a Marvel studios film and it was released under 20th century. Un- unbelievable. I had no idea that it was actually yeah. tied into Marvel. I'm the Marvel guy. Yeah, I should and, know that, and that's why there's a couple of really funny little, there's a great cameo, a, a Marvel related cameo in the middle of this film. It's hilarious. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, okay. I have to tell you. So, uh, you know, definitely go out and see it. You'll enjoy this. It's, it's nice. a, it's a summer popcorn flick that, that's uh, just a lot of fun, and it's really well made. So they they went straight to uh, straight to theatrical release to this. They didn't they didn't. So do so on on this one and uh, what's there's one other oh uh, uh, Chang, uh, Shang Chi yeah uh, those two films are getting a theatrical release with I believe a forty five day uh, window well before yeah. they appear on Disney Plus. Well that that's great. So people go out there to the theaters, support your local theaters, and support these films. And in fact, that leads us to our next Marvel Disney project, Shang-Chi, because it looks like (laughs) Simo Liu fires back at Bob Chapek, the Disney CEO, over a, quote, experiment comment. And so... So for the uninitiated, Chang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings was also released, as Dave said, uh, this past Friday. And this is, once again, a entirely Asian cast, uh, specifically Chinese. There are a lot of Chinese actors. This is kind of Marvel's take on the Bruce Lee kung fu franchise type of action films, the, the China, China film films, China film films, uh, martial arts films. 
And Bob Chapek had said something of a quote. Uh, let me find this quote. He goes that it was somewhat of an experiment for the company as the film only has a 45 theatrical day window um, that will not be made um, available on Disney plus premiere despite the ongoing pandemic. So that was his remark on the earnings call that happened on Thursday. And then of course, Lou who plays the, the title character Shang-Chi was not pleased and said, quote, we are not an experiment. We are the underdog, the underestimated, the ceiling breakers. We are the celebration of culture and joy that will preserve after an embattled year. We are this prize. I'm fired up to make history. I'm paraphrasing uh, on September 3rd and you can join us. So, you know, I, I, I got to say, Al, John, this almost feels like a disconnect for me because I think Bob Chapek's comment was it's an experiment. I think they're experimenting with their releases. Understood. Right. And uh, and I think that, you know, like Black Widow and um, uh, Jungle Cruise, they did day and date on uh, the theater and, you know, theatrical release and Disney Plus. With Free Guy and Shang-Chi, which, by the way, I think is Shang-Chi is opening next week. Oh, is it next week? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's next I'm week sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. So, got really but, but I think what's happening is uh, they're trying different things. And I have to say, more power to them. F- try and figure out what's going to work. Um, I don't know if uh, if this actor uh, took the uh, we're experimenting in a different uh, connotation than what was meant. But it seems to me that uh, JPEG was talking about the release uh, schedule and how they're releasing things that they're experimenting. And, and you know, you got to in this environment. Sure. And I, I understand that. Um, I think a lot of people are easily triggered these days. And listen, yes. listen, this is coming from, a, I am Filipino Chinese. Okay. So yeah. I just want, you know, so my first blush at that is probably not the best word to, to you know, to say, but once again, there's so many things taken out of context and, and truth be told, I have yet to listen to the audio of the entire yeah. Disney, you know, um, shareholders meeting. I typically do that, uh, while I'm working. And so, and I hadn't gotten a chance to do that, but a lot of things can be taken out of context. Sure. And, and I agree that at first blush, it could have been taken that way, uh, by the actor. And I don't think there was any, I don't think there was any, malice behind that uh, um, behind that statement but exactly right dave i think they are experimenting with this and heaven forbid there be another scarlett johansson issue that came up and there's more information about that you know apparently um scarlett's team was like trying to renegotiate a future movie appearances which they did not so they they waited until the release and you know to do this so this is kind of more of a, a post uh, posthumous kind of thing you know for Scarlet's well, team so more and more of of game it. there's a lot of gamesmanship and there's a lot of things behind the scenes that we don't know that's right but again I still stand by the fact that this should never have gone out uh, publicly like this mm-hmm. and become a public fight because it just it it, it ultimately hurts the brand uh, no matter how you slice it it's right. a brand withdrawal uh, and. and and, and, you know, I will say that Emma Stone uh, has already, um, you know, taken care of her deal with uh, Cruella uh, DeVille, uh, the sequel. Uh, and, you know, all of this stuff is is behind the scenes. 
you know? Yep, yep, exactly. I feel like they probably, and that's because she has another film coming out, so you better believe they, they're they they're paying Emma Stone. And I would think that they would have played it a little bit nicer with Scarlet and said, okay, I think we have room here to bring you back in another movie with Secret Wars and different things like that with the multiverse. So they could have played it nice with that. But, you know, once again, it's a PR nightmare, thanks to that PR statement. And with Simu uh, Lu as well, um, I don't. I, I'm hoping once again that this is going to be a, a, an excellent film for everyone because um, yeah, I, I believe that it, it would be great to see more Asians uh, represented in film and Asian stories being told. Um, yeah, so you know, with, yeah. without question, and I think I think you're starting to see that. I absolutely. mean, there, there there's absolutely a lot more going on with with people of color, with Asian Americans, with uh, you know, women, strong women roles. I mean, we're really seeing it, you know, and and I have to say, you know, we're going to continue to see it but at the end of the day what what matters the most is that not only is there representation across the board but great stories great are being stories. told and that's really where it's at it's got to be great stories you know that's right story story trumps everything you gotta you gotta yeah. have a, a great story well how about this uh how about a comeback story it's possible that Europe, uh, european film festivals are rushing to rehab Johnny Depp, and I would say rehab as in his uh, his career, right? Yeah, you know. So hey, you yeah. know, uh, honestly, when you read these articles, you know, because there's a couple of film festivals that uh, announced that they're giving lifetime achievement awards to John- Johnny Depp, uh, and I think this is a this is another situation where you know, um, uh, you know, it's the cancel culture trying to cancel people and destroy people, you know, and erase their careers, and uh, you know, at the end of the day. Whatever you think of Johnny Depp, he's done an enormous amount of incredible movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he has a body of work that has entertained tens of millions of people worldwide mm-hmm. uh, and made billions for studios, you know, and he has a strong fan following. And, you know, one of these um, uh, festival organizers pointed out that, you know, People are presumed innocent until they're not. That's right. Uh, and, and, you know, Johnny Depp's not been convicted of anything. He's just been flogged in the press. Uh, but he's never been convicted or arrested or anything. So, you know, you have to take the presumption of innocence uh, for everyone out there. Uh, because if you don't, then you're just going to destroy one person after another. Absolutely. So, uh, and I feel that way 100%, you know, and uh, I think Johnny's done a a great deal and he's also a philanthropist as well. He's done a lot of the, you know, things for make a wish and and stuff like that. So I, 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 you know, something, Al John, I, I I gotta, I gotta just tell you a story. Uh, You know, when he was filming one of the pirates of the Caribbean movies, Mm -hmm. I was still at the company and they were filming on one of the sound stages in Burbank. 
you know, and, 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 you know, during a break, you know, Johnny came outside the soundstage and, you know, like the office buildings on the studio lot emptied out, like all the assistants and secretaries and people like that were streaming over to see if they could get a glimpse of him. And he was incredibly gracious to people. Mm-hmm. He was, he was talking with people, he was shaking hands, he was taking selfies with people. He was just really nice. When he was filming one of the Pirates movies uh, over in London, uh, he went in full costume with one of his co-stars over to a children's hospital to visit the kids in the, in the uh, you know, in the t- children's ward. You know, he he's by all accounts, I've heard nothing but good things about him uh, with, you know, being gracious to fans and being nice and doing these philanthropic things. So, you know, something it's like, I think you have to give the guy the benefit of the doubt until he is judged by, uh, you know, a jury. If, uh, you know, if, if in fact he did something wrong. Sure. Yeah. I feel the same way. And my company has worked with Johnny on a lot of different projects. He, He's a great musician as well. So, you know, well, once again, I think it it is uh, great that he's trying to get his career back on track and, and that other people are supporting him. And once again, people are innocent until proven guilty. So, yeah, and I, I, I have to applaud these film festivals for giving him a uh, Lifetime Achievement Awards because he has an amazing body of work, period. He's, he's worked very hard for sure. Yeah. So how about this? Uh, you also sent me this note about Amazon planning to film the second Lord of the Rings series in the UK instead of New Zealand. That's interesting. You would think that they would save time and money and all that by well, doing it back to back there. Yeah, this was a big deal, I think, because, you know, uh, filming the first one, you know, the first series, the first season of the Lord of the Rings series cost $465 million. It's like the most expensive uh, uh, television series ever filmed. Uh, and they did it down in New Zealand where uh, Peter Jackson had filmed uh, the Lord of the Rings movies. And... Um, I think part of the issue here is that uh, Amazon has invested in a new studio complex in the UK. And also uh, when they were filming this series in New Zealand, you know, New Zealand kind of locked down. They weren't letting people in during the pandemic. Uh, And that included uh, some Amazon studio executives couldn't fly down to Mm. sort of visit the sets and check in on things. So, uh, and all the people working on the film, all the actors that were in it, yes, were effectively in New Zealand for two years. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, there's a lot of cross currents with this story, but uh, it's interesting. And uh, that's, that's, you know, season two is going to be filmed in the UK. There you go. I'm looking forward to it. We'll check that out for sure. Yeah. Another thing that you uh, pay close attention to are American film schools. You know, we have a lot of uh, film school and animation school students that uh, may listen to the show. And it looks like uh, they released a ranking. Yeah, this is the annual ranking of uh, the top 25 American film schools in the country. And uh, CalArts, which we've mentioned many times with our guests uh, on this podcast, uh, CalArts ranked number seven. 
uh, on the list. Uh, and we also have uh, in the Los Angeles area, uh, U- uh, USC Film School. Um, there is uh, also... Um, uh, the uh, NYU uh, in New York, which was number one. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, it's an interesting list. Uh, people can look that up. It's the 2021 top 25 American film schools ranked. Uh, and that's from the Hollywood Reporter. Right on. You know, there was something, um, you know, we have some regrets that we had kind of missed uh, last week's episode. I, I wanted to put a shout out in there to Marky Post. Um Marky Post, yeah. of course, passed yes. away, and um, a few days ago she was seventy with a following a battle with cancer. And I have to say, a big, big Marky Post fan. Um, watched her religiously on Night Court, just one of my favorite TV shows of the '80s, sitcoms of the '80s. And she had an incredible career um, being on, you know, as an actress working on The Love Boat and Fantasy Island. Um, so yeah, so once again, our thoughts to her and her fans. Yeah, and also um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter uh, is it? I think it was Pat Pat Hitchcock. Okay, uh, uh, passed away as well. Right, um, and she was an actress in her own right, uh, aside from being uh, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. Right. Um, I also wanted to throw this out there too. Uh, Lucasfilm historian J. W. Rinsler also passed away. He was the author of a lot of books, twenty plus books about yeah. the behind the scenes. Um, he died on July twenty eighth, and um, I meant to bring this up, but once again, I, I had met uh, J. W. Rinsler believe at a Star Wars celebration or one of the Star Wars celebrations. I've got many of his books. Um, they're just amazing books about the, the history and the behind the scenes of Star Wars. So, um, you know, his work will continue to live on in the hearts of all the Star Wars fans out there. And uh, definitely you will be missed. Yeah, that was, it was sad. Very sad. Absolutely. Well, on another note, it is time now to let the guests into the studio Dave, looking forward to this one. Absolutely. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al, John, as promised, we have two incredible guests today with us. Uh, We just pulled them out of the green room. Uh, We've got Alan Coates, Imagineer Alan Coates, and we also have Imagineer Tony Baxter with us. And we're going to be talking Claude Coates, as well as questions from our audience. So, uh, but before we get going, I, I just want to welcome both Alan and Tony to the show. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you, David L. John. Thank you. Yeah, our, our studio audience <laughs> is going wild with applause. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> well, you know something, I, I think really the, fir- the first question I want to throw out is really to Alan Coates, because Alan, you're the son of Claude Coates. And I guess the question I would have to ask you is, what was it like uh, growing up uh, with uh, your father uh, and your mother? Because they both of them worked at the studio. Uh, in fact, your mother worked at the studio longer than your father did uh and i just w- would want you to talk a little bit about like when did you realize your dad and your mom were working for the disney studios it must have been when my father was working on alice in wonderland and we were watching the first disney television program called one night in wonderland <clears throat> which was uh, a christmas special way back in 1950 and it was in black and white and i'm saying 
wait a minute, this is supposed to be in color. Why isn't it in color? So I think I had visited my father at the studio, which was my second home, was just up the riverbank. And I, I grew up there at that studio. And I think watching my father work there, I realized, first of all, he works for Walt Disney. That's really great. And I watched him in his animation work. And my mother had uh, left by that time. So that's I was a Disney brat, and I just had a wonderful childhood growing up at the studio. And uh, I, I guess the the next question I'd pose to Tony, uh, because Tony, you have you you have a very unique perspective, I think, on when you first met Claude Coates. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I can. Well, of course, being a kid of the fifties and the sixties, Walt showed us a lot of Imagineers on TV, and Claude was one of those. I remember him walking through the pirate model and uh, taking us through the dinosaurs with Walt. But I was also kind of a brat who got his first job at Disneyland scooping ice cream. <clears throat> and um, one day uh, our cafeteria was in the giant New Orleans basement area, along with the caverns and much of the pirate ride. And I knew a door had an emergency exit sign on it that took you down into the burning uh, city area and the, and the, and the dungeons. And so uh, we were leaving uh, the lunch, you know, area one day. And I said to my friend, I think I'm going to go open that door and go down and peek in and see what's going on. And this was about four months before the opening of the ride. And I got to the bottom of that stairway and uh, looked around. I could see the, you know, the pirates in the prison trying to get the dog and they were animated. They were running, but there was no water in the trough. And so I got a little closer and then I heard this voice say, well, you can't see it very well from up there. Why don't you jump down into the uh, dry river there and uh, you come over here and I'll tell you all about it. Well, of course, it turned out to be Claude Coates. And my only knowledge was of him being someone I recognized from that TV show. So I knew he was an Imagineer. And for one hour, Claude gave me the most detailed and really concerned that I understood it and that I got all that they were doing. It was truly an amazing thing. And of course, I got back from lunch an hour late and uh, was chastised and docked pay and all that. And I said, I don't care. This is the best (laughs) moment of my career. Well, cut ahead five more years and I'm working in Imagineering and I'd forgotten kind of about who was who and what was what. And then one day I opened up my pirate guidebook that I bought. And I remember always showing it to people saying, this tall guy right here, this is the guy that uh, took me through the ride. Well, when I got to that page, you know, I recognized again, it was the guy that took me through the ride, but also knew it was the guy that was now my mentor on Imagineering. And I could hardly wait to walk in that day to Imagineering. And then I, I did this little tease thing about, Hey, Claude, did you ever get ice cream over at Carnation? Yeah, yeah, I did. You ever remember a, a guy that worked over there and, uh, and, you know, and you might have given him a, you know, a tour through the pirate ride and his little red and white striped suit? And Claude, you know, immediately about that time, he, it dawned on him. And we had now been working two years together and we had never connected the dots on that, but we had met about five years prior, you know, at Disneyland. That That's such a great story. And it's so indicative of what, how Claude was, you know, as a person, you know, he wasn't sitting there going, you're going to, you shouldn't be in here. You're going to get in trouble and all that. He saw my ex- enthusiasm and it was beyond normal. I mean, everybody loves the pirate ride, but I was obsessed and he tied right into that. And, um, and that, that became 
kind of a guiding light in knowing Claude um, through the rest of his life. And, and it, it seems to me that um, uh, uh, that story, it, it really uh, showcases the fact that he was such a, an incredibly nice man. I, I had the pleasure of meeting him uh, towards the end of his career a bunch of times and talking with him. But um, he he just always had this this gentle quality uh, to him, yeah. uh, uh, and was always happy to talk with anybody that that approached him. Uh, there there was no standoff. He wasn't a standoffish kind of person. He was a very inviting individual, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. I think um, you know Alan had a different relationship, obviously, but as an employee of Imagineering we quickly learned that you worked for some people there mm-hmm. and you worked with other people. And I quit. I also realized very quickly that Mark Davis was someone you worked for. He was extremely talented, but I always wanted to have an opportunity to be creative on my own and not just be, you know, working for someone else. So I, I immediately, you know, moved towards Claude, who was that kind of a person who you worked with. And I always felt Claude was interested in, learning my viewpoints about things coming from another generation and working at the park. He'd asked me, he'd quiz me a lot about working on the rides, especially rides that he had designed, you know, <laughs> and I had worked on adventure through inner space, which was one of his classics, you know? And uh, so he would ask me a lot about that. And I felt like this, this mentoring thing to be correct needs to be a two way street. Mm-hmm. And Claude was the epitome of someone who understood that. And I feel he was learning some things from me while I was getting all the, you know, this career lifetime career handed to me on a silver platter. I mean, it was, it was just an incredible relationship. Yeah. Alan, you, you had the opportunity to work with your father. Did, did you, was it a father son dynamic or did your father work with you as a colleague? Uh, how, how did that go for you when you guys were working on stuff for Walt Disney world? As Tony said, you worked with, with Claude and uh, it was an interesting relationship. There were quite a few father, son, mother, daughter relationships at WED. So it wasn't unusual for sons and daughters to follow their parents into that field. And I worked, I worked very well with dad. And uh, um, uh, I, I think I read what he wanted. I could sense if he, I think I knew what he wanted me to do. And I, I had talents that he didn't have. And I think we complemented each other very well on the attractions that we worked on together. And um, uh, Tony, what what was uh, in your mind uh, some of those fond memories from when you first started at uh, at Imagineering? Oh gosh, I mean, we could go on forever. Um, I brought my marble machine, which was this engineering contraption that I'd gotten kind of my job off of. And we set it up in Claude's blacklight room behind his office. And what was unique about Claude that I I quickly saw is that he was more, you know, rather than being into the status of Imagineering, there was an area we called the Gold Coast where all the top-notch people hung out. And he would, you know, he had an office there from time to time, but it wasn't where he was comfortable. He was comfortable back right next to the model shop. And then he had his own little blacklight room. Uh, where he could paint and he was just around the corner from the saws and all the electric tools. And that would be Claude all day long, running in and out of the tool room, going into the blacklight room, you know, working with the girls in the 
painting area. Um, and so that was, I think, something that stood out to me right away uh, about Claude. And then, like I said, I as I worked with him, you know, I, I was willing to do the, whatever you call it, grunt work, uh, cutting out his leaf patterns for Snow White or helping Dave Burkhardt as assistant on 20,000 Leagues. And, uh, but more and more, I remember he started saying, well, why don't you just take that back to your desk? I'm not going to give you a sketch of it. Just draw up something. And I remember it was a stupid thing. It was a spider web for Snow White. Hmm. And see, now I can look at it and say, in Claude's perspective, that spider web just needed to be a spider web. It wasn't like a designy thing. Now, Mark Davis would have drawn you the rough outline of that spider and made sure that your model of it was exactly right. But Claude just said, well, why don't you just take that to your, and so I, I fretted over this spider web and I brought it back, you know, and I thought it looked pretty good. And Claude goes, yeah, yeah, that's great. Put it in, you know. And from then on, I started to get confidence. Uh, he would uh, say to me, well, what do you think we should do in the, the, in the dwarf's jewel mine and so forth. And, and then from that, I was making contributions to the Snow White attraction. And I remember when Card Walker, who was president of the company at that time, came over to appraise all the work going on for Walt Disney World. Uh, Claude said, oh, you better be around because I want, I want to introduce you to, to Card. And uh, this just wasn't done. This wasn't protocol. The lead guy would go to a meeting and then you know, call the troops back afterwards and explain what all went on. But I, I just, I saw that in Claude and then you knew we have a relationship. We don't have a working, it isn't a, a thing where it's just a working thing. It's we have a relationship where he respects me. And the more you saw that, the more you respected him. Mm -hmm. So I think those were the kind of early things that I recall um, when I was literally doing what he wanted me to do. And that in that arrangement, he started pushing me to do things on my own you know, and then he would approve them rather than, you know, dictating every detail about how it had to be done. And, and that was unusual uh, from the standpoint that, um, uh, as you said earlier, you worked with some people and you worked for some people. Yeah. Uh, and and um, uh, did did that kind of dynamic continue to play out over the, over the years uh, at Imagineering? Was it always that way or did it become well, more it, collegial? It depended on who you were working with. I think, you know, I not having the chance to have uh, worked there when Walt was alive, I think Walt was more like Claude than he was uh, like some of the animators or whatever. I think what he knew that he had the greatest people around him who could follow through on the, on the thinnest of an idea. As long as Claude, Claude or Walt knew that the idea was the right idea, he surrounded himself with people that he knew would bring it, bring it to light. So um, uh, that was a terrific, uh, you know, situation to be in. And I think as I learned, I realized that was both what was needed to make uh, Disney and Imagineering later uh, successful, being able to hand off and depend on a massive group of extremely talented people, like an orchestra leader would lead, um, you know, an orchestra. He might not be able to play the flute or the bassoon, but uh, he knew who could do it, ex you know, extremely well and made sure those people were around him. And I think that was um, very apparent with Claude. Um, and like I said, you, you immediately, if you wanted that challenge of playing great music, then you would seek out people that let you do it rather than insisting you follow uh, directions. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Alan, I, I'm curious. Your your dad was a magnificent uh, painter. Uh, I I mean, I to this day often tell people the greatest backgrounds ever painted are in Pinocchio uh, and Snow White. You know, the 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 backgrounds for Geppetto's workshop. Uh, did did your did, did your dad uh, do a lot of painting in his home studio? And and, and when did you first realize his artistic talents uh, growing up? Uh, yes, Dad had a studio at home, of course, as as most of those guys and gals did who worked at Wed or the studio. They, and he would paint on weekends. He would moonlight on other projects too. But uh, uh, he worked in a little space that originally was a dark room because he was a photographer, and he decided now I'm going to need this space to paint in. And uh, early on, he was still painting in watercolor, but then he started uh, around Pinocchio time to paint in gouache or what he called opaque watercolor, or at the studio out of the uh, the paint department, the paint lab, it was called poster paint for some reason. Yeah. And dad and everybody else would stuff the little uh, tubes of paint in their pockets and take it home with them. So he never had to buy any paint, but they <laughs> produced like 50,000 of these things a day. It was incredible, the amount of paint that came out of that lab. So I did watch my father work at home and I, I think that helped me later on understand, uh, you know, you don't push him sometimes and, and, and you got to work with him and learn from him. And that's, that's what I did. And so it was a, a father son relationship early on. You know, I, I, I would mention, and when you say moonlighting, uh, I'd let our audience know that that's freelancing. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and most, most of, most of the artists, uh, most of the artists that I, I have known throughout the decades, uh, all did freelance work. Uh, you, you'd always be, you know, working on a commercial or doing some sort of, uh, uh, you know, artistic related, uh, um, uh, project on the weekends or at night uh, to make a little extra money. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it was a very common practice and, and, and surprisingly goes back to the 1930s uh, on forward, but with, uh, I know your dad um, painted a number of uh, illustrations for advertisements for shoes and, and, and other things. Um, yes. And, yes and, during, during the war, he was doing magazine ads for, shoe company and that's a good point dave moonlighting sounds like desperation doesn't it well so it sounds like moonshine yeah. <laughs> hey i'm a tennessee no, boy uh, i know all about some moonshine yes you do help john i do no i'm curious i'm curious alan you know um with, with your with your father do you still have a lot of those archival things that he worked on uh, pre and during his career at Disney and, and, and how many notes or journals did your father keep? My father wasn't a writer. He didn't write down journals and notes very much. He sketched and he built models and he painted. I have his paintings. Yes. And the family does uh, many of his original paintings going back to the watercolor society in the early thirties. So I have uh, a wide range of his paintings. He was a, very much of a world traveler with my mother and in his later years, he painted primarily in acrylic. And I have those paintings. They're on the wall uh, and uh, around the family. But um, I don't have very much of his Disney work, his sketches, his concept. Uh, 
a lot of folks snuck that stuff out of the studio. That's why you see it on eBay today. <laughs> oh, oh, and dad was either too nice a guy to do that or just didn't think about it. My mother did. She took, uh, after she inked an animator's drawing, well, there wasn't any reason to keep the drawing. Can you believe that? Oh, so my goodness. <laughs> she just grabbed a few and brought them home and said, hey, this is some stuff. And she kept it. And uh, not to me at that time, but... Um, I wasn't there yet, but uh, she brought home a lot of really cool stuff. So I do have material that she brought back from the early days of animation, early 30s. Really nice material. Wow. But uh, Dad didn't pick up a lot of stuff. And and that was a an issue when Dave and I were doing the book. Is like, you know, we got to try to scrounge Alan, which I did, and, and was able to deliver to Dave some very nice pieces that I did have that Dad left behind. Yeah, you know, I I have to say, um, uh, you know, we're we're going to start to get into the 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 subject matter of uh, of the book, uh, uh, the uh, Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, the making of Disneyland from Toad Hall to the Haunted Mansion and beyond, uh, which is coming out this fall, uh, and uh, that that was one of the questions that that uh, that somebody had asked me um, uh, about, you know, how how do you how do you go about finding this material well there's there is the material is out there photographs are out there there there's things that people have in their collections that have you know people that ha have taken those photos i mean we got a wonderful photo of uh of um uh claude at the uh the beautiful tw the iconic twa terminal uh, uh that's just been recently refurbished at jfk and that was taken by mark davis uh, and that was uh, uh given to us by, uh, you know, from the Alice Davis collection, which was really quite nice. And, uh, but as Alan mentioned, there was also some, some uh, artwork. I mean, although there wasn't a lot, what he had was amazing. Wasn't it, Alan? I mean, yeah. really, so, yeah. some of it was really terrific that we were able to include in the book. And of course, Tony, uh, who was mentored by Claude Coates, uh, wrote the foreword to the book, which we're very appreciative uh, of him doing. Um, one of the questions I want to ask you, Tony, uh, is um, what was it like? Because you, you were mentored by, uh, by Claude, but then eventually became Claude's boss. I wouldn't call it that way. I mean, because we never were bosses. We had, you know, at least, you know, those of us in the design area, there was a whole hierarchy of people trying to be the president of this and the executive director of that. But I think down at the creative level, you were given assignments where you were going to lead the effort on this or that. And so, um, you know, in the in the first part of my career, I, I was, you know, devoted to what Claude had created and then he had the faith in me to send me to Florida to follow through on that. Again, there was a trust thing and I was blown away by that because I was 22 years old and I was down in, you know, in Orlando, Florida working on something creative that uh, where do I have the skills to be directing all of these workers and so forth. But from a corporate standpoint, the fact that I was able to, you know, survive and, and ultimately succeed at doing that moved me just intellectually, I guess, in the corporate view to someone who could be trusted to lead the effort on a, on a design. So that was um, big thunder that I came back and we, we weren't sure whether we we're going out of business if this thing in Florida didn't work. Uh, and so everyone was trying to make work and, and I settled on big thunder 
And I have a fun Claude story on that because I was uh, being pulled off of it all the time to vacuum the model or uh, any other number of menial tasks just because my boss thought it was inappropriate that I was working on my own idea because that wasn't an authorized project, uh, the big thunder thing. It was just something that I dreamed that might uh, be a good addition to Frontierland. And uh, finally, I'd had enough of it. I went into Claude and I said, you know, I just get going on this and I'm pulled off on another thing. Now they want me to do fish heads for the Disneyland Christmas Parade from Bedknobs and Broomsticks, the briny ballroom band. Mm. I didn't know how to sculpt, you know, uh, figurines and all this stuff for the wear on a costume character. And Claude got very defensive at that moment and said, you know, I didn't want to, you know, paint cells back when we were finishing Snow White. But you get to a point where you have to do what needs to be done to make something to get, you know, the, the, the project finished. And I said, yeah, I get that, Claude. And I would have probably done anything to see Snow White through if I knew how great the project was going. But I said, the fish heads have nothing to do with what could be a major new attraction that we desperately need in Frontierland because we can't afford the big Western River ride that market come up with. They needed something it could be done rather quick and so forth. So nothing happened for a day, but he was quiet when I said that. And then the next thing I knew, my boss came out all huffing and puffing. And he said, well, I just want you to know, I went to back for you and uh, we're going to allow you to continue working on this. <laughs> thing." And I said, oh, thank you, Bob. You know, that's just great. And I knew in the back of my mind that Claude had thought that through and he had processed it and, and he had gone just quietly around the table and that through. So we never really got to, a, I, I had projects I think that were going that were in the, in the high octane uh, range when Claude wasn't and vice versa, where I was like working on, you know, not, I, I remember at a point where I had nothing to do on Epcot and I started working on Discovery Bay, which was again, something that bombed out and never happened. It would have been good. I, it was sort of a non-issue thing. And I think Claude, had that same you know, resourcefulness to not sit around and not do something, but move on to a project that wasn't um, on the plate, if you want to call it that, but just the hope that, well, I've got this idea and I'll work on it and, um, you know, and maybe it'll go somewhere. And I think, you know, the, the people that were strongly motivated and weren't waiting for someone to come and tell them what to do, you always fell back on that. And so, you know, when you look at the, the, the years, there would be years where Claude was in that phase and I was in this phase and so forth. But um, yeah, I wouldn't, I don't ever think it was working. No, he was never, I couldn't have done that. There's no way I could have done that. It was too nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I do have to ask you though, the, there, there's an interesting uh, uh, thing that I think our audience w w would love to hear about. And that has to do with, cause you mentioned big thunder mountain and that was, that was going to be a, a major roller coaster because the audiences, uh, the guests wanted more thrill rides. And that's what some of the other amusement parks were starting to do. Is that right? Well, um, Mark Davis had come up with a major attraction. It was a East Coast version of Pirates. It was cowboys and Indians instead of pirates and, you know, uh, townsfolks in the, out in the Caribbean. Um, and the thought was logical that people on the East Coast so far away from the West Coast 
would find that intriguing the same way that New Orleans and the Caribbean would be fascinating. Well, what happened is when the park opened in 71, it opened without a pirate ride because nobody explained these facts to uh, the guests were coming. All they heard was, it's not as good a park as Disneyland because it's missing the very best attraction at Disneyland and that's pirates. So right away they went into building a pirate ride for Florida. And I think that was nearly the first major addition to the park. Um, and that put the uh, damper on Western River Ride. And then another thing that started to happen was the awareness that some of the humor, I guess you can be mean to pirates and Nazis. Those two are still good. <laughs> and really take down Native Americans that, that you know, make fun in, in, in that way. So yeah. it was starting to get feelings about some of the, the sequences in there were a little bit, you know, not, not appropriate. And so I thought, well, what if we break that ride apart so that we can always build the Western River ride if we create a facade that's separate from it, that has the runaway train. And uh, we had no attraction other than Country Bear Jamboree on opening day in, uh, in Florida's Frontierland. So uh, there was um, very strong, uh, you know, backing to do something, but not to the scope of a pirate ride if you're going to build pirates and then right next to it would be uh, another version, just using a different type of character. So all of a sudden, and again, with Claude's help to keep me from having to vacuum the models, um, I was allowed <laughs> to uh, keep going with Big Thunder, you know. So Big Big Thunder is going to replace uh, Nature's Wonderland, uh, the mine train through Nature's Wonderland attraction. Uh, and, and I want to ask Alan first, because there's a great story, Alan, of your dad trying to solve the Rainbow Caverns uh, issue with the multicolored waterfall coming down. And how would that stay multicolored in this black light environment. Can you talk a little bit about how he solved that problem and really also mention where that famous Walt Disney quote came from? Yes, that was Rainbow Caverns. That was part of the uh, mine train eventually through nature's wonderland. And there was inside these beautiful caverns with geysers and swirling pools of uh, black lit water. There was one waterfall called Rainbow Falls. And all of these colors had to come down. This color, the water with colored dye, uh, fluorescent dyes in it, that would glow under UV light. And all of these colors had to be separate. And Dad had sort of worked it out where that could happen. And at the studio where Wed was still located at that time, uh, one of the scientists who was working on the space television program, he, he came into the room and he looked at at the model and the sketches of, of what Claude wanted to do with these separate colors of bright water in this waterfall. And he said, Claude, you know, this isn't gonna work. It's statistically impossible to keep those colors separate. They're gonna splash and go together in one week, it'll all be gray. And Claude was walking down the hall later and he pass, passes Walt, he says, oh, Walt, uh, Yes, so and so, that one of the German scientists working with us, he said uh, that the waterfall in Rainbow Caverns is statistically impossible. We're not going to be able to ever make that happen. He said it's impossible. And Walt said to my father, he said this famous quote. He said, "Claude, you know, 
Sometimes it's fun to do the impossible. And he just walked away, leaving with Claude to say, okay, I got to make the impossible happen. And, and he did. And long story short, he uh, recruited Yale Gracie, actually, and the two of them put their heads together and eventually figured out how to make it work, to keep those colored water troughs separate so they wouldn't turn gray in a week. And uh, he made the impossible happen. That's what Imagineering is, doing that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting, Bob Gurr made the comment when we, when we went and talked to him about Claude, he, he said uh, about that particular, uh, you know, solving that particular problem. Uh, Bob said it was quite tricky to do once it worked, it worked really well. And to my knowledge, I don't think anybody ever tried a thing like that ever again. Uh, and, uh, which leads me to, you know, Tony, to ask you the question of you, uh, developed Big Thunder Mountain, which really replaced, uh, the mine train through nature's wonderland. Uh, and I'm curious if you ever had conversations with Claude about removing that attraction that he had worked on and what he felt about that. Um, yes, of course we did because he, but see, let's go back a minute that the design I was working on and which... Claude helped me uh, get approval to stay working on uh, was the one for Walt Disney World. Okay. And, uh, Walt Disney World opened the pirate ride and that gave them a massive popular attraction over on the um, west side, Ventureland, Frontierland side. So their immediate need was for something in Tomorrowland. And remember, this is 1971. Space program is big. So uh, they set forth right away to get first space mountain going in Florida. So all of a sudden, my big thunder, which was on high octane, go forward mode, was sitting there with, you know, like an orphan. And Disneyland, uh, the, re the way that attractions come and go is partly due to becoming uh, no longer, you know, uh, relevant. But it's also a very scientific look at the turnstile count that goes through it. So if you have an attraction, like when we did, redid the treehouse, the capacity on the treehouse is about 900 an hour, and we were down to 200 an hour uh, on the Swiss family. When we when we changed it over to Tarzan, it immediately went up to the 900 an hour again. So there's uh, the same thing that happened in Frontierland, a little bit by attrition. When Frontierland's area opened, there was stagecoaches and Conestoga wagons and uh, mules and trains. And it was part of a, a feeling Walt had about it, uh, the world on the move is exciting. He, it, it's a quote he used for uh, Tomorrowland, but I think it was equally uh, obvious in, in Frontierland. And so one by one, those had dissipated or gone away. And so there was no longer stagecoaches. There were no longer mules. And if that one, you know, nature's wonderland train was out on its run. There was no train in the station and there was no activity. And so uh, it was becoming a ghost town. And uh, when you look at the land space that it occupied, it was a good, almost a fifth of Disneyland. And so they looked at that as a tremendous potential. And, and also uh, they were very interested in opening, opening up a um, passageway uh, around out of Fantasyland, the same way that you can get out of Fantasyland to go to Tomorrowland. Uh, there was a big concern if we could get something like that to bring people out of Fantasyland and back over into Frontierland. So 
there was a lot of action from Disneyland's uh, uh, engineering planning group. And they said, well, you know, this would be perfect for us because we don't have major thrill attraction on, on that side. We have the Matterhorn, which Florida doesn't have. So they had the Matterhorn on the east side at Disneyland and, and Big Thunder became an answer to that uh, going on the west side. But once again, that didn't happen because of Space Mountain. Once the one in Florida opened, uh, Disneyland, you know, goes, well, we want that too. We don't want people saying, don't go to Disneyland, go to Walt Disney World because they have Space Mountain. So there's always sort of this one upsmanship thing. And so I got put on the shelf yet again. But Disneyland, ironically, did open first uh, before the one in Florida, hmm. which is amazing. And can you talk a little bit about Claude's philosophy on, uh, you know, uh, replacing things that yeah. he might have worked on? Because I, I think that's important for people to understand that, you know, uh, Disneyland was always a work in progress and Walt always felt it would never be finished. Uh, that it was always going to be a changing, evolving, new things going, old things getting taken out and whatnot. Well, you know, I, I, I'll give two examples of that. One is of uh, Nature's, Wonderland, Nature's Wonderland becoming Big Thunder Mountain. Uh, and sitting with Claude on that, we both kind of agreed the only thing that was sort of relevant today that would be really terrific and we could keep it in uh, Big Thunder was Rainbow Cavern. Uh, the desert and all of that, we could build around you know, the, the look of Big Thunder Mountain. So much of that could stay intact. And, uh, and the rest was kind of very, uh, what would I call, um, early, uh, you know, approaches to audiometronics that uh, they were struggling with. I mean, keeping the bear pelts looking good while they were in the water and various other things. There was really a tendency for it to look ratty. And uh, Mark uh, Davis had, you know, tried everything he could to add seasonality over it. So you'd go through winter and summer and so forth. But Claude, I think, was more aware of, his thing was it had had its run. It was perfect for the area in which it was done, which was the sixties and seventies when Westerns and that, that whole genre was the biggest thing on earth on television and everywhere. Um, but it was now time to maybe move on to the next thing. He got that. The, the other one that was interesting is I had worked as ride operator on adventure through inner space, uh, which was Claude's, I think uh, magnum opus for, abstraction and science fantasy, uh, you know, and it was something that I don't think anyone else could have done. I mean, it was, a, it was clearly the antithesis of uh, left to his own devices, what Claude was capable of doing. And that was essentially, you know, tapping into the gestalt of what was going on in San Francisco in the mid sixties, which was a very um, loose, do your own thing without any kind of theming or storytelling. It was just, ends and love ends and all of that uh, light shows and lasers, you know, things. Uh, lasariums. Lasariums. And but what Claude said is that's where the energy of entertainment has moved. What if we did a themed uh, story employing those kind of new technical devices to create an abstract attraction, literally an ab a complete abstract. And so. When that opened, it became so popular, they had to find, you know, it was sponsored by Monsanto, so it was a free attraction with ticket books, and you could go in there free. Well, that didn't work because teenagers had a, a field day in there doing everything <laughs> from adding, uh, imbibing things that would make the journey even more abstract to <laughs> became a tunnel of love and, 
and countless other things. So it actually had to get a ticket added to it for children and teenagers. So you couldn't go on it unless you had a ticket, which um, limited uh, <laughs> a lot of the problems with that ride. But they weren't really problems. They were a new generation that wasn't born on Peter Pan and Snow White. It kept them en entranced and amazed by what Disneyland was. Now cut to Star Wars, and we're now in 1985. Well, that whole thing, that whole revolution of the 60s has kind of gone the way of the dodo birds and those kind of be-ins, love-ins, and, and light shows are not happening up at the uh, Griffith Observatory or wherever. And it was time, I think, and Claude realized that too, that Star Wars had, you know, it was a wave that had come over the, the world. And here we, we had this opportunity to put a, the first simulator into a park for average people to ride on something that, you know, the, the test pilots and so forth would use. And he was very open to that, even though um, I can imagine something like that that was truly, you know, one of his flagship uh, you know, achievements that he did without Walt, basically. Um, and, you know, but he was, I think, very comfortable with realizing this could be really fun and I'm excited to see how this goes. That that's that was Claude on to the next thing. And I asked him one day, I said, does it bother you going down to Disneyland and seeing maybe some neglect or broken things uh, on the rides? And uh, he said, yeah, it does. And that's why I, I <laughs> I don't go as frequently as I might like to because I like to remember them the way that uh, I did when I created them. And so, you know, I think that idea of Claude living in the part of creation rather than becoming the uber fan of his own work or other, you know, work was just part of his personality. Uh, th those creations, whether it be the inner space in the 60s or the 50s with Rainbow Caverns, um, they had their time, and he was now very comfortable creating for the '80s. Yeah, and, you know. Yeah, Alan, did did your dad ever talk about uh, any of those attractions after he was done with them, and uh, whether you know uh, he wished he could have done one thing or another, or uh, was he satisfied with uh, with what he did? I think it, it initially he was satisfied. Those were really great comments, Tony, because it made me remember a lot of things. Uh, he, uh, when I first see an attraction, it was I was just blown away. For instance, Inner Space, but over time it it slowly started to change. Uh, Disneyland did a great job. Of, of maintaining what was created there. I'm not taking anything away from that, but here's, here's, here's one thing in particular. When a light would burn out in one of the attractions and it would go dark, that light bulb need to be, needed to be replaced. And sometimes it wouldn't get put back in exactly the right spot. Yeah. So Yale Gracie came up with a way of, when you turn a light fixture to replace the lamp in that flood or spotlight, it had to go back and click into spot in the same location. Right, Tony? So yep. it was rough. So what Claude had created was looked the same. So he was sensitive about that. And once he came home and he was really upset, he said, some kids went through Mr. Toad and they threw paint. They threw paint on the flats. He said, why would anyone do that? You know, there was, I won't call it vandalism. It wasn't terrible but there were people who would do those kinds of things and uh one kid thought he'd steal madame leota's head out of the crystal ball 
You remember this, Tony? Yeah. And he actually got out of the doom buggy and started to walk over to the globe. And he, he <laughs> fell right down and broke his leg. And he was screaming down there because there was no floor. Yeah. Because of the special effects needed to create that illusion. So sometimes, you know, the kids or people or public would be an issue. And, and it would, uh, dad was a sensitive guy and it would upset him, of course, when that would happen. I'm Clark Coates and uh, I started at Disney's and uh, in backgrounds. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I painted backgrounds for, well, started 1935. June, and I've been painting backgrounds for about 20 years since Disneyland started, and I switched over to WED, which is the Walt Elias Disney Company. Mm -hmm. We have a new name now, we're called uh, Walt Disney Imagineers, uh, this month, and uh, I'm still there. Mm -hmm. We work on uh, shows and uh, attractions for Disneyland and Tokyo. Um, it's uh, still showbiz, you know, even though it's... Uh, and once in a while, I even get back into some animation. We had one in Japan that we used the studio uh, animation department on to do uh, a crane as a narrator for a, for a Japanese show to little children that we use both as audio-animatronic figures and also live figures. And the crane uh, was interviewing them and telling them about their past history, which came off quite successfully. So every once in a while, uh, the uh, animation business shows up again in, in our work, too. Is there any story or thought you'd like to relate to us? Or? Well, no. So, uh, well, I, I feel fortunate that I've had kind of two businesses uh, with Disney, one in the cartoon mm -hmm. business and then one in the uh, outdoor entertainment business or the attraction business. And... Uh, and they all interweave. Mm -hmm. uh, I find that uh, a lot of the lessons we learned uh, early on in uh, story development, uh, storyboards, and uh, quickie models, and things like that, that uh, Walt uh, taught us or are still used. We still like to work that way, kind of a, a rough form, like a rough storyboard, and then we find it as we mm -hmm. go along. And we find sometimes that other people we work with don't quite see it that way. They, I think that background was very, very helpful and very good because it, it, it lets you change things more quickly than if you get into a very precious uh, model or mm -hmm. drawing or something or a huge painting and, and seem like you're stuck with it, you know. Uh, but uh, now there are fewer, fewer people at the street at WED uh, that really did have their start at the, mm -hmm. in the... Uh, animation business, but uh, they seem to uh, be going along real well. What's the nicest thing about the business for you, or working? Well, I find uh, we do have a lot of connections now with other outside corporations, like for, mm -hmm. in Epcot, we worked with a lot of General Motors and Kraft and Exxon, and, and they all uh, are very appreciative of uh, Disney. They all they all say they wish they had our public image, you know, mm -hmm. they, and it really comes down, they like to rub elbows with Mickey Mouse, I think, oh, really. Mm -hmm. they, it has a, a little glamour to it, and, and it's all, uh, feels like it's upbeat, and they don't, we don't, no one thinks we have any problems, and we don't have too many. Mm -hmm. If you had it to do over, would you do anything different with your... No, I, I think I'd, I'd do, try to do the same thing, something better. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Florence. I appreciate it. 
Curious, gentlemen, you know, when you we're talking about adventure through inner space and, and the Monsanto thing, and, and, and both of you can can actually chime in on this as well as uh, what what experiences Claude may have had to work with or in partnership with a sponsor. Um, when you're developing these these type of attractions for the park, especially how important was it that the sponsor inject not only product placement that we saw you know, in, um, you know, the, in different attractions, but were they given any other type of creativity to work in partnership with you? Or was it the Imagineers putting together these attractions and then saying, this is the presented thing. This is your, your product placement. How did that work out? Who, who wants to go first? Yeah. Well, I can quickly say when I was working on Epcot development with Marty Sklar, uh, we were working on the energy pavilion, which was to be sponsored by Exxon. And I came up with a concept about a gee whiz future where oil and gas would be pretty much eliminated. <laughs> and we were using alternative power sources and out and outer space and doing all of these things. And Marty said, Alan, you know, this has theatrical potential, but I don't think we can sell Exxon on this because, you know, people, you know, they don't want the audience bypassing the gas pump. And I said, you're right. I just didn't think about that. I wrote the third act first. If I built it up properly and then even Exxon might have gone for that because uh, I was talking about the 21st century back in the 20th century. But uh, to answer quickly your question, yes, I think particularly with corporate sponsorship at Epcot, we did have to think about who the sponsor was. And, and work with them and keep them happy if, if they were going to put in their 50 million initially for uh, an Epcot pavilion. I, I would go back to uh, growing up with Disneyland. Um, those sponsor names, whether it was Monsanto or it was General Electric or Bell Telephone um, or Goodyear, uh, those became the names of the attractions. So uh, it was a value that I think most marketing people in those corporations weren't really aware of what it did not necessarily to the audience they were playing it to, which would have been the adults, but the children growing up with that were forming, I mean, Monsanto isn't a, a, a what would I say, a completely clean company. In, in <laughs> <laughs> but as a child, Monsanto was beyond reproach. They built the home of tomorrow at Disneyland. They built, you know, this adventure through inner space. They had the hall of chemistry. So, that name was on a pedestal. And I think that there's a short-sightedness that's brought us today to where uh, sponsorship is now not something we can easily get for a permanent, you know, cement and mortar, um, you know, construction. I, I think the, the best one that I experienced was with Kodak, with Journey into Imagination. They, they seized on the fact that the existing pavilion options that were left, I think they had a choice of space and the land, no, not the land, space and the seas. Uh, and they said, well, we don't really see ourselves in that light. We see ourselves as a company that makes people more imagined. I remember that was the, the line. And then they followed it was something like, well, can't we do something about imagination? And so that was totally Kodak uh, pushing us to realize we had forgotten the most basic of all uh, human traits that 
none of the worlds of energy or transportation or anything could have uh, transpired unless it was, you know, was without this gift of imagination that human beings have. And so not only that, but there was a big statement that we would not have the characters in it because this is dignified, this is science, this is the future. And so Mickey and the gang aren't going to be there. But Kodak again said they, we were pushing the idea of seeing imagination, not through human brains or through biology or whatever, but through two lovable Disney. And I remember fighting very diligently, not with Kodak about it, but with Disney <laughs> to, to break the rules. And I, I think it came down to, you know, one of those, you want us in the in, in Epcot or not, you know, then we want Figment and we want Dreamfinder. And, um, and that was sort of that, you know, it went forward. And of course, those two characters became endearing to the uh, more than more than just the Kodak Pavilion. And to this day, Figment now is sort of the mascot for all of Epcot, because it is those little sparks that um, ignite all kind of forms of imagination, whether they're scientific or they're artistic. So he's become the mascot. And uh, that would not have happened if it were not for the Kodak. Right? Yeah, I'm just, I'm also curious that I, I would uh, throw out there that the sponsorships uh, were hugely important to Walt early on when he was building Disneyland, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. They couldn't have I mean, he wouldn't have been able to do some of the stuff without those sponsorships. Epcot either. I mean, the, the, the numbers on those pavilions, that was the first time we moved up into the 60 million dollar range per pavilion and that was huge in ba back in the early 80s so um you know that was the commitment that you know these only companies like general motors and kodak uh could you know be in that like disney disney was not in that league now today i mean we're a monster company so you know <laughs> we would be the sponsor rather than the well i i mean but 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 today uh they don't need the sponsorships a and B, it's risky to have sponsorships because you could you could be uh, get a sponsor from a uh, you know an outside company that all of a sudden two years later is embroiled in some you know scandal. More than that, I think advertising as a whole has moved uh, instantaneous uh, hits and plugs. We all know the frustration of trying to get on a website without uh, the clutter that's all around it. Um, that's where the money is is going now because it's instantaneous. And as you say, you're not 10 year contract with brick and mortar in one you know, site down in Orlando, you are all over the world. And a minute after you're, you've made your message point, you're done and yeah. you move on to the next thing. So it's just an entirely different uh, model than what was uh, appropriate and worked well. So so far in the back in the past. Yeah. Alan, I want to, I want to bring us uh, back to the book uh, and, and what your initial thoughts are. You know, you saw, you saw some books being done on other Imagineers. Uh, what was your thought about um, a, a book about your dad? Well, um, I thought it was time that that should happen. Dad had been in many other books mentioned, of course, in books and on, on, and DVDs and, uh, uh, on social media, online, but uh, there really hadn't been a book about my father. And uh, I kind of put the word out to my colleagues that uh, I think it's time that someone comes forward. And uh, I didn't want to write it myself. I could have. I was offered a chance to do that, but I said, no, I, 
I shouldn't be the one to do it. And uh, is, is it I, because you would just like because you're his son and you're just too close to it? Well, that's that's part of it. And would what I write be true? I mean, when a, I have a book about a famous movie director written by his son, and I think he embellished a few things in there. <laughs> so I, I thought it's better that I step back and be a partner with an author to tell my father's story because I have the archive and I worked with him. So I had enough to be able to put forth the information, but I needed someone like Dave Bossard to step <laughs> forward and say, well, I knew your father and uh, I'd like to write the book about him. I said, that sounds like a good idea to me. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it was sort of serendipitous because, because I, and I've told this story a number of times already, but um, uh, Alan and I didn't know each other, but we were at a conference uh, uh, the same conference uh, about five years ago. And I was walking into the conference and Alan was walking out and he actually saw my name badge and he says, Hey, Dave Bossard, I got your Dolly and Disney book at Barnes and Noble. And I was just so thrilled that somebody bought my book at Barnes and Noble. I was like, my book <laughs> is at Barnes and Noble, you know? And, <laughs> and, and I saw his name badge and it said Alan Coates. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, he's gotta be like, Claude Coates' son or something. And uh, when I went to look for him during the morning break uh, at that conference, uh, Alan had apparently gone home ill. Uh, he wasn't feeling well. And uh, a mutual friend of ours uh, put us together via email. And Alan and I uh, met up at the Talleyrand. Uh, and it was actually, by the way, the first time I ever sat and had lunch in the bar at the Talleyrand. Uh, I normally would eat up in the, the restaurant area, but it was, uh, that's where Alan had a table. And um, I just wanted to tell Alan that I had met his father and, and his father was incredibly nice to me and, and spent time talking with me over really, I think it was like the last 18 months of, uh, of Claude's career at, at Imagineering. Uh, and, and how deeply sad I was that after he retired, he had passed away like a year later. Uh, and I, I just, you know, but I, I wanted to just convey what a nice person his dad was and, and the time he spent with me and, uh, in the Imagineering commissary, which is where I initially met him when, when the animation department was moved over to, uh, the Glendale, uh, area across from Imagineering. So, uh, by the end of that conversation, Alan asked, you know, would you be interested in doing a book on my father? And of course I said, yes. So, uh, uh, and and that was the sort of the beginning of this journey, uh, because uh, it, it's amazing when you think of Claude Coach, you think of somebody who is really somewhat introverted almost, wouldn't you say, uh, Tony? He was a quiet guy. He was a very pensive, thoughtful guy. I was I was drawn to this. Well, first of all, because of my relationship with Claude, wanted to be a part of it, but also in the, the, the what impresses us about theme parks or Disney to me, are the places that they take you. And a lot of focus has been on the animation side of uh, the attractions. I'm not, I don't want to put that down, but climbing a treehouse or going into a pirate uh, city or into the caverns of this and that or a haunted mansion, the environments, and again, going back to what you said, Dave, about the backgrounds in Pinocchio. Uh, yeah, there's a little puppet in front of it and that's the story, but 
I can watch those films over and over again just to look at these incredible places. If you look behind me, yeah, a lot of Ivan Earl, uh, because Sleeping Beauty is, is the same way. It's just extraordinary in, inventive uh, backgrounds and places that, that those films took us. And I think when Claude was tapped by Walt to come over and bring a toad ride and a pirate ride and you know an adventure into inner space, Walt realized this was the guy that created all these places. And I don't think a proper book has been done on the places. And the, the number one man for creating those was Claude. And so it, it just is a perfect kind of uh, dovetail. And I was pleased that I got to be a small part of it. Well, I, I'm I'm actually uh, with you on the fact that I can watch these films, these early Disney films, and just be drawn into the actual environment. Uh, yes, there's some action going on in front of them, but I'm in awe of like, well, you know, and, and a great example of this, and again, Claude Coates, uh, I think uh, at the pinnacle of his background career, The Old Mill. Uh, and what an incredible, I mean, that it, it, he even said it was a background film. You know, you're, you're watching the old mill uh, and it's all about the uh, mood and immersion into yeah. this environment uh, and, and the, the little bit of uh, animal character animation being done is just incidental. It's accenting these beautiful backgrounds of this old mill uh, during a storm. I remember, uh, you know, talking with Claude about Lady and the Tramp, which was, I think, the last feature that Claude was uh, involved with. And he built models of Lady's house. And the reason he did that was so that he could get a camera down in there at the dog's elevation and create really uh, realistic environments that were from the perspective of a dog. Now, I thought, who would think about doing that? And the fact that when we go through the house from ladies or tramp, we're at a dog's visual impression of a Victorian home. That made the difference. And that was the kind of thing I think Walt saw those models when that's what we did. Yeah, no, with, with, without question. Um, I, I have to say, uh, with this book, uh, uh, Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, The Making of Disneyland, um, it, it really was a group effort because I don't think this book could have been done by any one person. Um, uh, you know, I relied heavily on the fact that uh, not only working with Alan and having access to the family archives, uh, but also Tony having you read the book uh, a number of times, a, a number of drafts on it and giving us notes and comments and, and, and whatnot, which fortunately I would say were minimal. Uh, but uh <laughs> <laughs> Red streaks everywhere. But, 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 but I, 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 I want to ask you, Tony, what's your impression of the book? Do, do you feel like it does justice to Claude uh, for, yeah. for a portion of his career? I do. And for me, it was interesting because the, it dwells on the portion that I grew up with as humor. And so that is the Claude that I don't really know very well. And as you know, Dave, we talked a lot about my bringing impressions of what I with Claude after the audit, do that forward. And you said, well, we've got to figure out how to tie this all in. And I think we did a really good job of that. But there are so many innovations Claude created, especially for Walt Disney World, that I felt just had to be in this. 
I was going to ask you uh, about whether there was anything that surprised you when you when you read the initial drafts of the book. <laughs> now you've got me on a, on the spot. Well, like I said, everything everything surprised me uh, about the Claude that was younger than the Claude that I ever knew because it, it paints him as a, a regular young guy and, and the things that happened to him and the whole war effort where he went over for the uh, the uh, Air Force to paint in Japan and encountering the uh, Nara Dreamland and various other things that uh, he experienced while he was over there. Those were all very exciting things to me because um, you, you got to realize that his career, the career Claude from 1970 on was something that I saw day to day. And, and we discussed elements of the career, you know, his career doing, you know, everything from pirates and, and so forth. Mr. Toad, he was down there at Disneyland I think I have some pictures I, I gave for the book of Claude, you know, taking us through the dark rides in Fantasyland and talking about all of that. So I was pretty well up on Claude as an Imagineer. So for me, the book was, and the majority of the book is uh, leading up to the time at which I, I became a, a partner with Claude at Imagineering. So the majority of that was to me all surprises because, um, you know, it's the kind of stuff you didn't know to ask. Yeah, yeah. Was, what, how could I say, what was it like working uh, with the Air Force and going to Japan? I mean, because I didn't know he did that, you know, until, until I read it. So that was all. And, and then you have some of the paintings that he did during that. And they're hanging, uh, where is it they're hanging? They're, they're, they're part of the U.S. Air Force art collection. Yeah, yeah. so that's really the stuff I didn't know about. So, um, yeah. And, and as I said, I am a background. I think if I was working at the studio, I would have been in the background department or layout. Um, that's what fascinates me, creating environments. And I think you go to Disneyland not to be a character. You go to Disneyland to be immersed in amazing environments. We didn't even talk about 20,000 leagues. But I, or the submarine ride at Disneyland. And yeah, let's let's talk about that because actually, we, <laughs> we yeah. believe it or not, I have a question from a listener. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but let, let's just talk about the inception of that because uh, that that was an attraction that was added to the Tomorrowland area of Disneyland. If you think about, I used to tell people what is important about Disneyland. I said, imagine a place where you can see the president of the United States states speak uh, about things we all need to hold dear to our hearts where you can ride an elephant fly on an elephant and you can go under the seven seas in a submarine all in one day that's impossible nobody on the planet earth from the dawn of history was ever able to do that and so the bold move of saying we're going to allow people to go underwater in a submarine ride now whether it was walt or it was claude that initiated that it was definitely claude that made it happen and got to the point where you could actually, you know, take a thousand people under the water every hour at Disneyland. And, you know, as a kid, if you remember walking down that stairway and watching your eye level go below the water, I mean, that was one of the most striking aspects of that ride. I am now walking below the surface of the water. Um, and there were some tricks in making it all safe and everything, but the net effect of that ride was absolutely astonishing, I think, in the time that it was done. And to um, to set out to do something like that, there's no rhyme to reason in an amusement park or 
any other form of uh, entertainment to do that. And, and yet it established a new outpost about what is so important about um, what Disneyland is. Yeah. And, and Alan, I, I know as we were putting this book together, there there were we, we had a couple of conversations because Tony mentioned the bit about your dad painting uh, some of the scenes in Japan for the U.S. Air Force. Um, uh, that that was a little bit of a surprise for me when we when we started uh, t- delving into that story, um, uh, and we had a conversation about whether to include that in the book, yeah. you know, and, 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 and Tony, you may want to weigh in on this too, because I, I had argued that I felt that the NASA trip uh, and uh, the um, uh, trip to Japan uh, both needed to be in there because those types of uh, uh, trips, those types of experiences when you're working for a company like Disney are important to contributing to things that you may do in the future. Absolutely. I mean, I there was a DVD that was released on the trip that Walt organized to South America with several animators and Herbie Ryman, the illustrator and so forth. El Grupo, the documentary, El El Grupo. um, So it shows how important that was to not just Disney, but to understanding with other countries. And I think, uh, you know, getting just to peek a little bit into things like that, that Claude was able to do, fills in some of the gaps on why certain things that I saw uh, him do as an Imagineer why why those were important to him because they had been um, something that occurred and was prominent in in the memories of his life you know um I, I wanted to say one more comment on the submarine ride too is like once the hatch is locked and you were down there looking out your own window uh into this new world that you can't see once you leave disneyland you cannot participate in this world and it was a one-on-one experience with an environment. And again, that's what I, I really want to impress about what was different about Claude. It was all about creating these places. Um, yes, there were mermaids. Yes, there was a sea serpent. But it was you entering their world in a realistic way that just had never been done before and never has been done since. This is the only two, this one and the one in Florida, which is gone, were the only two ways to uh, experience that. And and that is the Disney theme park. Yeah. Do you, do you think that the I mean the one in Florida is gone? Do you think that they'll ever close the one in uh, Disneyland? I hope not. I mean, um, like I said, I uh, I worry about Mr. Lincoln. I worry about it <laughs> because if you harmonize everything to where they're all very efficient and they're all six minute you know thrill rides or whatever, you have a carnival. You have an amusement park. And we see that everywhere. The, the thing that Disneyland has are some real jewels that are maybe more difficult to keep going or are not as well attended, but they are what establishes credibility of Disney being something that aspires to be more than any other uh, enterprise, similar enterprise. Um, it differentiates it from yeah. everything else that's out there. Yeah, and like no one would put a figure, you know, in an amusement park uh, talking very spiritually about the nature of freedom and Americanism. Nobody would go to the trouble. Do you know how much harder it is to maintain the submarine ride than any other attraction? I was going to ask you about that because, that, I mean, is that why they closed it in Florida? Oh, yeah. Licensed divers. There's uh, one host for every vehicle. You know, when you when you dispatch a vehicle like Peter Pan or whatever, 
it runs aut autonomously. So, um, you know, here you've got a ride where you've got literally a guy that's entrusted with the lives of 30 some people for the next 10 minutes, you know, <laughs> one on every boat. And like you start adding up the fact that you've licensed divers, uh, you know, clean, you know, at, at a rate of, of maintenance, it's a reduced about half the efficiency of doing it in the air, you know, yeah. scuba equipment and all that. It, it, it's, no, it's insane. Nobody should do it. But what the way I look at it, you take and you average that out. It's worth keeping something that's ungodly expensive going like that in, in, in balance with a 3D movie that costs nothing to run, you know? Right, right. So, you know, you don't look and say, let's make them all uh, a good average figure. You say every, every um, you know, storybook plan and jungle cruise and, uh, and submarine ride um, that's very expensive to operate, then we'll have something over here that's very reasonable to walk through the tree costs nothing. <laughs> you know, sure. Like, yeah, exactly. Balance it out. Don't try to set a standard and say, well, this one isn't performing good. No, you have some things that perform so well that we can afford them. Yeah. yeah. Cost Alan, Alan, uh, I want to just, uh, cause we're, we're bumping up towards the end here. I want to ask you what you feel, uh, you know, when, when you go to Disneyland and, uh, you look at some of the attractions that, that Claude Coates, uh, was involved with, uh, you know, those are, those are seminal attractions that have been populated throughout the park system around the world for Disney. Yeah. Uh, and still hold the test of time. What, what do you, how do you feel about all of that? How do I feel about it? Well, <clears throat> yeah, his legacy lives on certainly in the Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean. And uh, uh, it, many of his attractions are gone or they've been altered in, or replaced with something else. As Tony said, 20,000 leagues is gone in Florida. Um, the one attraction that's exactly the way it was when my father created it in 1958 is the Grand Canyon diorama on the on the Disneyland Railroad train around the park. When I go through that, it's like, gee, I'm a kid again. This is the way it always was. Uh, the last time I went on the pirate ride, maybe I shouldn't say this, but maybe I'm too critical because I remember the first impression and like i said earlier <clears throat> there can be uh it, it's maybe it's just me but i wasn't as impressed as i was originally i think um you know your 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 impressions change over time as you age maybe that's the difference i don't know but i don't know as many times as i've been on pirates of the caribbean and it's a lot i have to tell you that uh I, it's still breathtaking for me when we come out of the grotto into that huge uh, space with the pirate ship firing its cannons at the at the spanish town i i just absolutely still am awestruck by it, it, it yes, it's really yes. one of the best Reveals. The reveal. That's that impressed me the most when I first was on that attraction. That silent approach through the cave with just that voice saying, "I they be pirates ahead" or whatever. And then you come out into that huge space with the battle going on at nighttime with the cannonballs and and the the pirate on the ship with his uh, telling his crew to do this and that. It was just really awe-inspiring i just thought that was unbelievable that uh, that first time i saw that huge space that dad had created and that immediate change from quiet to explosive action and, and noise 
Yeah. I, I mean, it, it really is spectacular. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to just jump back to 20,000 leagues, Tony, because we did have a listener question, which we think you can answer. We hope you can. Uh, they said 20,000 leagues under the sea at Walt Disney world. I know it was based on the submarine voyage, but it had a very different sea serpent character since Claude developed the scenery of both of those. I was wondering if he designed the Walt Disney world sea serpent or if it was someone else. Oh, it's absolutely Claude. It and was. I have it. I have it. If we, if this was a video thing, I would show it to you right now. Yes, <laughs> you, you do. You do have it, and uh, I, I don't. I, I think we did. We. I, I'm not sure if we used it in the book. Did we? I think we were going to try to use it, but we didn't because it was Walt Disney World. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not in the book. No, the serpent. No, we didn't. Use, we didn't use that. Yeah. So, uh, but that was designed by Claude. Yeah. And awesome. I, I think it has, uh, it has a quirkiness that I, I can recognize, as does the one that was in the original ride, which is no longer there either. But uh, both of them had you know, just sort of a special, I, I don't know, it, maybe it was the fact that Claude was an environmental designer rather than a, an animator. It gave it a look that was a little distinctive from um, what the, if it, an animator had done it, it would have looked like Figment, you know, and I, nothing, no problem with Figment, but I liked the, the wild, weird look that, the, that both of those dragons had. And, you know, the Disneyland show, uh, Walt wanted it to be 20,000 leagues, but going back to your sponsorship thing, General Dynamics, who had built the uh, atomic fleet for America, uh, came to Walt and said they would be happy to sponsor the ride, but the boats would have to look like their atomic submarines. So um, they, they went back to the drawing board and uh, the ride uh, initially had many scenes from the story 20,000 Leagues that weren't actually incorporated into the movie of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So the lost continent of Atlantis and all of that uh, was uh, actually in the in the book. So it was an interesting kind of melange. Uh, and I think both of them wanted to be 20,000 20, Leagues, but um, General Dynamics with their dollars won out because again, back at that time, I think the ride cost two and a half million dollars in 1959. And uh, that was about like $200 million today. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and also the, the um, uh, uh, General Dynamics submarine, the nuclear submarine for the U S Navy, it was the first time they went under the North pole. And that, uh, that was the goal of the ride to take you to the North yeah. pole rather than to Atlantis, which was. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Did you work the ride Alan as a ride operator ever? No, I didn't work the subs. No, I was, uh, I was on the other side of the park. Remember as alligator yeah. Al. So I didn't get to Tomorrowland. <laughs> when you think about that ride, it still comes back to me that, you know, uh, we didn't have to narrate like you did. We had a tape. But at the beginning would say, General Dynamics, builders of the Nautilus, welcomes you on this voyage through liquid space. Destination, the North Pole, not Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they were the gray, they were gray submarines. Well, they, were right? just the, the, they were patterned after the fleet, the American. Yeah. And, and Walt was very bold about that. He told uh, the Russians when Khrushchev wanted to come that he had the eighth largest fleet of submarines in the, in the world. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh gosh. So um, I, we, you know, we're going to uh, sort of wrap up at this point. Uh, uh, do we uh, uh, have uh, Al John, do we have uh, any, any additional uh, uh, questions? Yeah, actually, um, you know, because Claude was so integral in creating a lot of those immersive attractions there at Disneyland, I thought it might be cool to play a couple, just a word association. And this goes out to you, Alan and Tony, and even you, Dave, um, you know, what are just some of the, the, the words, maybe a couple, like maybe a brief sentence, um, associated with some of these attractions. Shall we try it? Mm. Yes. Okay, let's do it. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. We'll start with you, Alan. Uh, my favorite ride. (laughs) (laughs) Unexpected. Unexpected. Out of control. And I have to pause on this one because it wouldn't be there. I I was given one of those Solomon decisions that they had already removed it from Walt Disney World to put in Winnie the Pooh. And um, they asked me to do the same thing in California and it would then mean there are no toad rides remaining in the entire world. And I took the, which I've gotten yelled at by countless people. I took the course of taking out country bear jamboree for the poo uh, attraction. And now my feeling was we have a, a country bear in Florida and we have a toad ride, the best toad ride ever because Claude laid it out and the track is still the same layout. Um, hmm. And we got Ken Anderson back to do the exterior uh, sketch for the, you know, the toad hall on the outside. And so it, it's franticness, it's tightness, it's, um, it couldn't meet code today. It's the spaces, are too, <laughs> uh, you know, so it's grandfathered. And I, you talk about, will we ever lose the submarine ride? I certainly hope with all the effort we never lose the last toad ride. Where else and- can you go to hell in a Disney park? I- I, know, I was right? just about to say that, Tony. I mean, it's the only place you can go to hell in the uh, in Disneyland. <laughs> I love it. Well, it, it is. I, I feel that way too, Dave. I mean, that, that's is that is that your your word association for that? Hell to hell yes, and back. A, 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 absolutely, you go to hell and back there. I so, love. Alan, did you ever find out who or what you know put that ending onto the ride? Because it's not a part of the movie. I was always just curious how they came up with that. We, I, we, 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 we never touch on that in, in the book. Right. No. A mystery remains. I love yeah. it. There's still an unsolved mystery there. How about this? Carousel of Progress. And we'll start with uh, Tony. Charm. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where every voice that was cast for it was perfect. In the original show, I can't stand the updates because once you grow to believe this is the voice that comes out of that character, you know, Rex Allen was perfect, you know, and uh, the choirs I had, um, a friend's mother was the high uh, alto voice in the choir, you know, uh, she did a lot of Disney voices, Norma Zimmer from the Lawrence Welk show. And I could hear her in the twenties chorus and everything. I just think it was one of those things again, where, yeah, there was a cast to it, but getting to travel through, you know, from the dawn of, you know, before pre-electricity up to quote modern times in the sixties was a journey, a time journey with music that was incredible from the Sherman brothers and these voices that were so soothing and charming uh, that you you can get in line to see a 25 minute commercial 
over and over again and not wear thin on it, you know? Alan? Yes. Uh, what was the question again? Oh, Alan? just your, your, um, your, your word association. It's, it's just a quick uh, about uh, Claude's contribution to um, the Carousel of Progress. Um, I guess uh, to use a film titled Friendly Persuasion, he yeah. was very good at, uh, as far as I'm concerned, in helping me become an Imagineer or even become a, a, a ride operator at Disneyland. He's, he seemed to be able to uh, say something in a very pleasant, calm, gentle way, and it would happen. Things would happen because of the, of the man he was, the way he, the way he spoke and interacted with people. Dave, do you have anything to, to chime in on you, that? You know, the thing I would mention about uh, the Carousel of Progress to me is that, you know, it, it's a great example of ideas that percolate and are developed, but then set aside because they're they're not going to be used at the moment, but all of a sudden get pulled out of the, the bag of tricks because, you know, he, he developed that concept of the, the audience revolving around a center stage for or I think it was science. Was it Science Land or what? What was the? Uh, um, yeah. It was Science Land, wasn't it? Was it? Science Land, that early yeah. addition to Tomorrowland. Yeah, it was. It was going to be like another land at the park that never materialized. But uh, when the New York World's Fair came around, uh, they kind of somebody said, "Hey, that theater that Claude had developed, you know, uh, the revolving." theater and uh and so it was used for the new york world's fair and then and then uh installed down at uh, disneyland and i thought that was fantastic and you know it speaks to the company uh never really throwing good ideas away uh it's just you know they they kind of get shelved uh and for a more appropriate moment i guess i don't know yes I'd be no bad ideas. No bad ideas. Yeah, there are no bad ideas. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about two more just really quick because, uh, you know, we touched on a lot and we can't, once again, Dave always says we, we can't, uh, uh, we can always expand on this maybe in the future. We can't do it all in one episode, but there are two quick ones. Haunted Mansion, Tony. Um, let's see. Immersive, I guess, would be the word. Uh, in Again, an environment where, you know, you are allowed to go in and then because you eliminated the walkthrough aspect where you'd be constantly aware of practicalities don't step here avoid touching that wall uh you they, they came up with this device this omnimover which was created for adventure through inner space first and then realized that it could direct you like a cinematic experience but you were really there so the cross dissolves from one scene to the next they're seamless because they're orchestrated at exact moments in the music and the dialogue and everything in a way that I don't, I think exceeded anything that had gone before. Helen. It, it touches a huge fan base. Uh, you, you, you approach possible death, but you survive, you come out of it. You've had a good time and you want to go back again. You, you survive. Yeah, that's right. Dave, you know, for, for me, I, I always think of haunted mansion as, uh, just, uh, as Tony mentioned, a great immersive experience. Uh, but it's also, you know, I, I think of it as the first major attraction done after Walt uh, had passed away. Uh, and, and it was interesting to, to see all of those ideas that were floating around for it come together 
in, in such a terrific attraction, uh, but also uh, it, it, it seemed accommodative. You know, it accommodated different factions at Imagineering of, you know, it should be super scary. It should be, you know, more fun. It should be this or that. And how they all came together. Team effort, you know, to to make that uh, attraction what it is. And, and again, another iconic attraction that, you know, Claude was, you know, uh, a major part of uh, and which has spawned its variations at different parks around the world. This is for the hardcore. Okay. Horizons. And we'll start with Alan. Uh, Dad said working on this pavilion is like going back to school again. (laughs) He had to project into the 21st century. This was in the 80s, I think. Right, Tony? Yes. And and he, he loved the research and the imagining the future that we're in right now. And that's what he said. Uh, They're paying me to go back to school. (laughs) Nice. Tony, I know you're on the move and this, this is the last bit, but uh, I know uh, Horizons may have a special uh, juice. So I'm I'm (laughs) trying to get my power back. Now we appreciate that. While you're plugging back in, Dave, do you have something uh, to note about Horizons? Uh, only really what, uh, what Alan had said. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, you know, every project these guys worked on, uh, was, you know, it wasn't, they were trying, they weren't trying to redo what they had done already or, 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 you know, do a variation on it. They were inventing stuff. Tony, the last, last bit. Um, what are you going to ask? Uh, oh, on Horizons, do you have a do you have any oh. any anecdotes and last bit for uh, yeah, Claude and Horizons? I, yeah, in terms of Horizons, it's the show that should have been in the uh, sphere, Spaceship Earth, because it's the cumulative look at what you're going to experience today at Epcot. Um, you know, it, it covered the oceans, it covered space, it covered the the use of the land, and it showed where we've come from and the fantasy of imagination with Jules Verne. And then it stuck its nose into the future uh, and kind of prepared us to, I thought, have walked down the ramp out of Spaceship Earth and then delved deep into all of these deep dives and all the other pavilions. And I think if it would have been me and I needed to remove that, you know, the building, whatever reason, I would have saved the sets put them in spaceship earth and call it a day. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tony, you, you nailed it. I feel like so many of us um, Disney fans feel the same way you do uh, regarding horizons and, and it's place possibly in, in spaceship earth. And that is just a brilliant way to, to just wrap this whole segment up. So thank you. And, and from the fan perspective, you know, um, the the mark that Claude had left on the Disney fans, regardless of, you know, the, his work in film and animation, as well as Imagineering and all the great attractions throughout the years, just added so much. And I can tell you that the, as, as a child, I still have these uh, these great, um, you know, just, uh, ama- just great memories from the submarine voyage. That was the, one of my favorite attractions growing up. One of my first visit to Disneyland. Um, and I know that, uh, that Claude had such a great part in that. So I'll thank your dad, Alan. And of course, both of you and, uh, and Dave for, for making so many great attractions over the years. So thank you. Hey, thank you. Uh, thank you. uh Alan last thoughts. Uh, what do you, how do you feel about the book? How do you feel the book turned out about your father? Well, I have to say, I think it turned out absolutely fabulous. It's, 
it's a big book. It's it's heavy. It's two hundred and sixty-five to sixty-four pages, and I it's bigger, Dave, and and better than I ever anticipated. It's it belongs under on everyone's coffee table. It's really very spectacular, and the scope of the book. It takes us to the New York World's Fair. It takes us to Japan. It takes us to NASA. It takes us around the world in Dad's art. In the final art gallery section of the book, you can really see his development as an artist over 50, 60, 80 years. So uh, what can I say, Dave? I'm just, uh, I'm just totally delighted with it. Excellent. And Tony, what do you think about the book? Well, it's uh, more to me, it's something that um, kind of gives me a biography of my life at the same time, because so much of it uh, was something I lived through. And to see it from another perspective uh, is amazing, you know, to get to, uh, you know, to be with Claude during his later years of his career and now get to be a participant in what went on from the time he arrived at Disney and then particularly his charmed years at Imagineering where everything that came out was spectacular and was a part of my childhood. Um, so uh, I thank you all for uh, creating something we can all look at in that same way because I think everybody that grew up in our time frames, you know, the, the key attractions at Disneyland and then later Walt Disney World um, are what made us who we are today. So I'm just thrilled to have something like this. I don't have a coffee table, so I'll have to put it on my <laughs> <laughs> on display somewhere. Yes. Well, I, I have to say the book would not have existed if it weren't for Alan and his family uh, and the generosity of opening up the, the, their uh, Claude's uh, archive, the family archive. Uh, and Tony, uh, your contribution in writing the foreword, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful for that and for you for being part of it all uh, because you knew him so well. Uh, and I would just say that people should at least buy one copy, if not multiple copies, to have around the house. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and then a, a reading copy, you know. There you go. Absolutely. And uh, and if people do want to get a, uh, a copy of the book, they can go to theoldmillpress.com, theoldmillpress.com. They can order it uh, or they can go to their favorite online retailer or better yet, if you have a local bookstore, go to your local bookstore and ask them to order the book for you because they can get it for you. All righty. Uh, and I think with that, I'm going to say thank you, Alan. And thank you, Tony, for being on the Skull Rock podcast. Well, thank you, guys. It's been wonderful being with you. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one. For a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. I think I could listen to them talk all day. Dave, I, you know, it's it, it's just fantastic. I, I love hearing the stories. I mean, that the story of uh, of how Tony first met Claude uh, while Pirates was under construction is just unbelievable. I mean, you know, it's just I can't I, I, I can't help but love hearing that story every time I hear it. I can't hear it enough. It's just such a wonderful story. It's awesome. 
once again, uh, go go back and listen through and find those little nuggets in there. And I'm sure this won't be the last um, we're going to be hearing from from any of them because it, it's amazing to hear Alan and Tony's stories. And, and maybe we'll get them on for some one on ones in the future for sure. I I hope so. Absolutely. Once again, fam, I call you family. Because you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show. You made it this far. Go ahead and go all the way and subscribe. Leave us those five-star reviews on those podcast platforms wherever you find our show. Uh, share the show with your friends and your Disney friends. Tell them I listen to Skull Rock Podcast. And follow us on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can follow Dave and myself individually on LinkedIn. And send us those wonderful emails because we love getting mailbag stuff. Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. Dave. And as always, everybody, peace and love to you. Go out, have a great week. Uh, be positive. Be kind to one another. Get your vaccination if you haven't done so. Mask up. Let's get rid of this pandemic. And uh, we will see you again next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com skull rock podcast is made possible by listeners like you we'd love to thank Charles, Lindsay, Spencer, and Joshua. To support this podcast to sustain future episodes, visit anchor.fm forward slash Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.